Welcome to Line Noise, a podcast about electronic music. I'm Philip Sherburn. And I'm Ben Cardew. And uh, welcome to the world's most irregular, regular podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can say it's been a little while, but... Uh, We've been busy. We've been busy, exactly. We've been we've been brewing up great things. Um, we've been we've been sinking deeply into the world of of high culture, as we're going to be discussing today. Well, I see you brought your bow tie and uh, your your jacket with tails. What, my, yeah, my suit jacket or dinner jacket, exactly. What on earth can the reason be? Well, uh, Ben, we're going to the symphony today. Perfect. All right, pack the 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 sandwiches. No, what do you take to a symphony? I don't Monocles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Opera glasses. <laughs> there, there we go. Um, not just any symphony, though. Well, today we're going to be we're going to be going to the rave symphony. Yeah, indeed, we're going to be talking um, classical crossover, the dance, well, the electronic music classical crossover, um, and uh, the reason being that we there seems to be a, a spate recently of these projects where you've got uh, electronic music producers doing uh, classical versions of their works. The most recent, uh, just out now, is Cole Craig. Uh, his new project Versus, um, but there's also been Jeff Mills has done it. There's a Hacienda Classical. Uh, Derek May did it with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Uh, Pete Tong did it, Ibiza Classics, and uh, even your friend of mine DJ Spoony is doing it. Uh, UK Garage Classics with a forty-piece orchestra. Right, right. So <laughs> who ordered that? Yeah, I don't know. That that one hasn't happened yet, right? Uh, no, that's in li- the Liverpool International Music Festival. Uh, which I think is in uh, July the 21st. So, I mean, I guess the place to start with this maybe would be with Carl Craig and, and his Versus project, since that's sort of the the most recent and the most high profile of these. And it's a little bit different because a lot of these others are actual live performances. I mean, the Jeff Mills Blue Potential with the Montpellier Philharmonic, that was in... Um, Somewhere in France, was it? Montpellier. Yeah, it? exactly. That, was, that would I, be it. There was a new bridge, I think. It was, it was spectacularly French, like it was to mark the opening of some new bridge. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's part of Trump's <laughs> infrastructure plan, actually, is to have Jeff Mills at, at the opening of every new bridge. So oh, It's uh, good for something then, you know. Um, but yeah, all of these have been live things. The Carl Craig album is actually based on a live performance that took place eight years ago, but this... but. His album is a little bit different, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Yes, um, I mean it started uh, back in 2008 when they did uh, a, a gig at La Cité de la Musique in in Paris, the French again. Um, uh, and Carl Craig was joined by Les Siècles Orchestra, um, and Moritz von Oswald and Francesco Tristano, and it was recordings of uh, classic Carl Craig uh, tracks for the occasion. And all went down very well. And uh, then they went into the studio to record it. And he spent uh, eight years tinkering with the results. Um, And actually, I think that is what makes it the most successful one of these crossovers that I've heard. Uh, I still have some reservations. But for me, those eight years were very well uh, spent. And I think they helped to create something that works a lot better than, for example, the Jeff Mills one what do you think well i wanted to ask you uh what you thought worked and what didn't um i'm not a huge fan of of the carl craig versus i think um i i have my doubts about about this entire um kind of genre or this whole project um which we can get into as we discuss this uh but i wanted to ask you what you thought worked 
why does this one why does the the sort of eight years of tinkering what what does that accomplish well i think what happens if you listen to the jeff mills one for example which is on youtube i've listened to it on youtube there's a dvd as well okay. yeah yeah um and he released it as an album uh you can hear it's basically him he sort of presses go on the drum machine and the orchestra starts up and for me the difficulty is sort of the synthesis between those two because you've got very different sounds you know the sound of a drum machine um and the sound of an orchestra for me they don't quite sit right you know i was listening to the bells this morning which is just one of my favorite jeff mills tracks but this version you sort of got the drum machine over there pointing to my right you can't see that got got the the orchestra over there and sort of there's no middle it's like it's like you know when you used to get those albums old uh stereo albums like old Beatles albums on stereo and you'd get like half the band on one speaker and half the band on the other it's a bit like that you know and you're sitting in the middle you can hear them both but it's like well why why have I got these two different things yeah Bjork when she recorded Homogenic the the idea was originally to do a stereo experiment just like that and have the drums in one channel and the strings in another channel and I think the voice in the middle and the the whole idea was it to for it to be like this interactive album that you could hard pan left and you'd get one album and hard pan right and get another album and and uh now i th i think that works if you're doing it deliberately but for me the the point of doing this kind of classical electronic crossover is you're doing one project so it should all be mixed in as one if you see what i mean it shouldn't be like you get two separate things it should all be part of one unified sound if and, that makes sense. and so you feel that the carl craig project gives you more of that cohesiveness or that unified sound yeah i don't know what he's done but i mean he was talking about this in an interview that he spent ages kind of tweaking it to get the sort of feel right and the kind of groove right you know um so that it didn't sound uh awkward and i think he's done that that said um i like the album uh, I've quite heard it all, but I like the bits I've heard. Um, but I wouldn't listen to these versions. I can't see myself why I would listen to these versions and not the originals. That yeah. I think is my main problem. I think, I mean, for me, the the entire and this kind of I, I, I hope I don't sort of shoot our conversation in the foot because I'm I'm going to my complaint goes to sort of the root of what what I don't like about these things. But I feel like electronic music it lives and dies according to the circumstances of its creation and the technology with which it's created. I mean, Carl Craig's um, music is not compositionally that fascinating necessarily. It's not about his chord progressions or his melodies. Um, it, it's about the timbres of the of of the sounds that he's used. It's about sound design. It's about the synthesizers. It's about the mix. Um, and to me, that kind of thing just doesn't translate very well to a symphony orchestra. Like I was listening back to, um, listening to back and, uh, was listening back to back to his track technology. Uh, and then the, the version on versus. And I think the version of technology on versus is probably my favorite track on that album but not because it sounds like the original it's it's my favorite because it's the one that sounds m sort of faintly like steve reich or something like that i think it's the one that maybe does the most with the symphony orchestra and has the most 
sort of different orchestral timbres being used. But but ultimately, the the music's just not that interesting. Well, one thing that he said was uh, he was talking about the new version of Atlas that he did for on, on Versus. And he said something like, finally, those flutes that I had to do on a synthesizer, I could actually hear them as flutes. And I was thinking, well, I quite like them on a synthesizer. Exactly, you know? exactly. And sort of the, the thing with techno, and certainly classic Detroit techno, is that it has a certain sound. And that sound, for me, is more um, synthesized strings and synthesized flutes. Uh, maybe it can, you know, or if they're sampled, it it depends upon the specific sample they're using. Yeah, and this was sh- probably you know through sheer necessity. They didn't have the money to go get an orchestra, but that's how we're used to hearing them, and that's the sound that works. You know, the difference is, I would say, um, why I, I kind of wonder why they didn't do new tracks for this. You know, because why he didn't just write new material with exactly. the symphony orchestra? I'm not yeah, saying yeah. Like, oh, it's really easy. Just knock out twelve tunes. <laughs> can't get get on with it. But um, that would sort of avoid this. You know, constant think about. Well, do I like this better than the old version? Well, no, not really. Right, the no. A to B, A B testing that you're constantly doing. Exactly. Thinking of a track like Phase Action in the Trees. Right. I love the techno track, but it's a house track with a with a beautiful sort of cello line. And that, for me, works fantastically well because that's the original, if you see what I mean. That cello is in the original. It's not like they originally did it with somebody, you know, knocking out a cello melody on a cheap synthesizer. It's just they started off with the cello, and I think that works really well. Right, they could have used this substantial budget that they had to bring in the orchestra and have them record new compositions by Carl Craig and then give him those parts, and then he could have gone away for eight years and kind of remixed those parts and probably come up with something... I mean, some like brand new Carl Craig epics, the kind of thing that he hasn't done for a while now. I I wonder when I listen to these things as well, what are the people in the orchestra thinking? Because these are massively skilled musicians. And <laughs> they're thinking, what, these four notes again? I know, you know, I know really? that unsound, they do a lot of stuff with strings. And I think part of that is because they get funding for that. I think that right. the, like the Polish Cultural Committee funds that. And so they've done a lot of things. They've done like... Julia Holter with strings, and um, I can't even remember who else, but sort of every year. They've done a lot of the bedroom community guys from Iceland with strings, and Johan Johansson and and those people. Um, and a lot of those, yeah, a lot of the music is kind of harmonically and melodically quite simple, and I, I, and, and I know that the, the musicians go in for like a day to rehearse, and, that, and that's really all they have, and, and that's actually all they need because there's not a lot going on to it. But um, yeah, I... I I agree with you that I, th- I imagine they must be wondering sometimes kind of what exactly they're doing there. Exactly. And I, d- I don't know if you've seen the uh, Jeff Mills uh, video as well, or if you just heard the audio. It's because sort of got him, like the, 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 the conductor goes, one, two, three, four, and Jeff Mills presses start, and he's wearing a bow tie. It's very, it's quite weird. And the conductor's wearing an earpiece, I think. And so the conductor is playing to the click track of what, of what, um, Jeff Mills is playing. So the conductor, you know, has to follow this very, very strict tempo. And I noticed that even the vibraphone player, or Marim, whichever it was, a mallet player, was also wearing headphones, um, I guess, because her piece had to be really strictly in time.
What I would say is I would go to see this, I think. Um, and I would probably quite enjoy it. I mean, but I think it works far better as a live event than as an album, I would imagine. And in fact, I was getting excited because Carl Craig uh, is bringing this album to Sonar, but in, in a twist, uh, they're not doing it with an orchestra. They're doing it with a synth synthesizer ensemble, which is kind of weird. They've made this album for orchestras, and now they're playing <laughs> it with a synthesizer ensemble. That's very strange. I mean, I would probably enjoy that more than the than the orche orchestral version, but um, yeah, I I think part of my issue is I'm just not a big fan of the of symphony orchestras. Like I like chamber music, I like string quartets, but I don't like that kind of 19th century, you know, a hundred instruments in a room, big massive fanfares. It's just not. It's never really appealed to me. I like how noisy it is, and I like the sort <laughs> of physical effect it has. You know, where you can actually feel the 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 air move, and I like that. And I um, but you know, I don't. I don't regularly go uh, to orchestral events uh, yeah. as you can probably imagine yeah somehow it just it makes me think of like it, it and and the, the with the the carl craig album it it all feels very sort of john williams to me it feels like the star wars soundtrack i think he actually mentioned that as a reference well you know different strokes for different folks but isn't that a good thing that's the whole soundtrack no i don't want to listen to the star wars soundtrack outside of the context of star wars oh okay fair enough so you're not one of these people that goes to like classic TV themed <laughs> concerts. Also <paper>. not. <laughs> also not that. Um, no, but to go. I mean, to go back to to what I was saying about sort of the the importance of the timbre of of the recordings. I think it's interesting that in electronic music, there's really no culture of of cover versions. When when's the last time you can think of? I mean, when did somebody cover Jeff Mills' "The Bells" or another iconic track like that? They don't. No, I mean, uh, there's a couple of covers. Do you remember that sort of awful wine bar house cover of Strings of Life? No. Um, it was big in Britain. Hopefully, you never got it. It's ju it just sort of, it took everything you liked about Strings of Life and just sucked the life out well of if it. You, if you can imagine, I mean, if you can imagine, you know, being in a wine bar, and yeah. that, that, that's basically how it sounds. <laughs> I'm not explaining it very well, <laughs> but it's, it's just not very good. I mentioned Strings of Life because. It, um, that seems to be like the standard when you're doing an orchestral uh, cla uh, techno classical thing. You've pretty much got to do Strings of Life. I skipped ahead to the end of the, because the whole Pete Tong does Ibiza classic Classics on is on YouTube, and I skipped ahead to the very finale because I figured Strings of Life would be the climax, and it wasn't. It was some like weird, slow, down-tempo thing that sounded like it had, what's that guy's name, John Newman? The Oh, yeah, yeah, he, he takes part, yeah. Was that him? Okay, yeah, you could tell. But they do Strings of Life. But I'm anyway, sure they I'm do somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I was just looking at the Pete Tong things, and they played two dates at the O2 in London. That's 50,000 people. That's insane. Yeah. That, that many people want to go. And I mean, the, the, it, you know, kudos where kudos are due. It was a very high-energy room. You can see on the video, people were feeling that. Yeah, um, I thought it was really interesting that they ended up, though, and this goes back to, to my point, <laughs> the dead horse that I'm beating, but <laughs> I thought it was really interesting that they ended up using a lot of electronic elements in theirs. Like there's, skipping through, I came to a point where they did ATB's um, 9 a.m. <laughs> Here I Come. Oh, I haven't and, heard that. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> but they use, because it's got that little like silvery kind of guitar-like riff, the legato riff, and they did that on a synthesizer. I mean, they, they kind of reprogrammed the riff, and I thought right there that kind of went to the limitations of the format. Like there was no way to get a violin section to to be able to play that riff. You know, it's like 
So I was I was wondering, would you prefer it? I've been asking myself this question. Would you prefer it if they did it all orchestra, like they had somebody actually rather than having a drum machine? Um, for example, in the, in the Carl Craig one, they had they had someone actually like beating out that four four beat on a massive bass drum. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what if if you're going to do it, you need sort of the in- to to respect the integrity of the project. You know, I was going to um, introduce at this point uh, a, an album I kind of wanted to talk about. Uh, I was going to choose a track off it as my recommendation, but I think it kind of fits in here, which is um, the first album by Sinjin Hawk friend of the podcast um first opus which actually is an album that really uses an orchestra in a very clever way i think it's a surprisingly orchestral album um and uh it uses uh i don't know if it, i don't know quite how it's put together but it uses the sound of an orchestra i mean the first thing you hear on the album is sound like an orchestra tuning up and there's these big orchestral bits on it and there's also real choral bits um choral right. arrangements and i think that works really really well because it's genuinely classical in a way but it's not that's what it is from the start and actually what he does he puts it all together very well so you get this bombast yeah, that works with these kind of massive kind of trap beats with an orchestra going full flow over it and you think wow this is actually pretty impressive yeah it kind of goes to to the heart of what you were saying about you like the volume of a symphony symphony orchestra and he's sort of taken that idea of like the volume and the physicality of it and he's sort of weaponized it you know he's created this this 21st century version of it he's made it into electronic music in a way that's quite quite potent exactly and i haven't heard anyone quite do that before i mean you know you've had electronic music that uses orchestras and uses orchestral instruments, but not quite in this weaponized way. Yeah. I, like, I like the way you put I it. I mean, I guess Hudson Mohawk, to a certain extent, I think you can see Sinjin as, as an extension of what Hudson Mohawk was doing. But Sinjin, what's really new about him, I think, is the the way he uses those choirs. And yes. I, I remember we when you and I met up with, with them in Barcelona not too long ago, he was telling me about how he kind of built this software instrument that was like a sampler taking children's choirs and kind of, and that was his kind of trademark technique and it, it really sets him apart as you get this it always reminds me of the cook the thief his wife and her, and her lover because it's this like almost castrato style of singing this like super pristine high um kind of soprano vocals but then it's like these swarming buzzing swarms of castratos <laughs> <laughs> someone described it as half half synth half orchestra i think yeah yeah i, I mean of, sorry half choir half synth half choir yeah and it does things that no choir could do because I think if you get it like a if you get it like a synth, you can go you know in a way that no one could sing. Right, exactly. He can give it kind of a legato, all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. So, well, shall we listen to that song? Let's listen to uh, one that's currently on YouTube, which is on set, where you'll hear uh, a real orchestral attack. <laughs> So Ben, uh, coming back to the idea of uh, classical crossover, now that uh, uh, now that Sinjin's taken us to the classical outer classical crossover outer limits, um, 
why is this format so popular these days? What why are so many people, you know, rehashing old electronic repertoire as as classical repertoire? Do do you think it's an attempt on behalf of electronic music at sort of cultural legitimacy? Is it an attempt on the part of orchestras to appeal to a younger audience? Is there something else going on? Well, I think it's a bit of both. Um, and this is something that slightly worries me. I mean, put it this way. If if I was a producer and, and an orchestra said, we're going to make orchestral versions of your song, I would say, brilliant, go ahead. Because <laughs> it, it must be fantastic for them. But it's the kind of question of legitimacy that sort of worries me that... Um, I certainly don't think Carl Craig is saying this or Jeff Mills, but that, there's almost the idea that, okay, now an orchestra is doing this. It's kind of legit. You're it's okay. real culture. Yeah, you know, pat on the back. I mean, did you see Jeff Mills got a Chevalier des Arts et Lettres from, from the French government? I did not see that. He did, which is like the highest sort of cultural um, award the French government can, can give. Sorry, that was... Which is, which is great and awesome, but he should get it for, like his DJing ability. You know what I mean? He should get it for his 909 solos, not for uh, Montpellier team-ups. And I wonder, is this um, an age thing as well? I mean, is it getting to the stage where, you know, people who were listening to these tracks 20 plus, 30 almost years ago, um, we're, do people think that we're of orchestra going age now? So we want this? I don't know. I, I would imagine it's more of an outreach thing. It's more of somebody in kind of biz dev <laughs> at, you know, no, seriously, <laughs> at these at these symphony orchestras side. is like, hmm, you know, our, our core audience is aging and dying. How do we reach out to the Gen Xers? I know. <laughs> Let's get their, you know, popular dance tunes re, you know, remixed as it were for the orchestra. What, what I think is also a little unfortunate is like because musically it's pretty conservative and it's this you know it's i mean it's essentially it's just the sort of the pops model you know it's like 30 40 years ago you could go to the boston pops and see them actually doing the star wars soundtrack or deep purple yeah, like, or yeah exactly yeah. deep purple um and and I mean, the reality is like classical, quote, unquote, quote, classical music hasn't stopped being avant-garde. It's just not in this context. I mean, you could go see or hear Matmos collaborating with So Percussion, and there you actually have people playing in the classical tradition, but doing new and radical and interesting things. I mean, the there's a whole other kind of wealth of work being done between trained, you know, I, I hate using the word classical, but there's just no other oh. real <laughs> word for it. You know, like trained musicians in the classical tradition and actual working composers, you know, putting things on paper, working with electronic musicians, working with experimental musicians. That's all happening, but it's not being represented by, you know, the Boston Pops does um, compact. That That's not a real thing, by the way. More's the pity. More's Not the pity. yet. <laughs> I, I was just looking this up very, very quickly. I believe Glastonbury uh, this year, they are going to start off one of the stages with a, I think it's the Hacienda Classical. Um, and uh, that I can actually quite see. Yes, Hacienda Orchestra to open Glastonbury Festival's Pyramid Stage. Wow. I actually, that idea I quite like. So 11 in the morning, Glastonbury, <laughs> everyone, everyone's hung over and they're like, <laughs> you know, wow. which is uh, quite, quite something. 
What I find funny about the whole thing is it reminds me, it's almost like the inverse of back in the disco days. In the disco days, everybody was making like disco 12 inches of popular kind of classical themes. And so there was like disco Beethoven and disco Star Wars and all of these things. And now it's, it's the opposite. Now it's like classical versions of disco hits. Exactly. We've come full circle. Lucky us. <laughs> <laughs> So it's time for some recommendations. Ben, what do you have for us this week? Well, I have got a track that probably could not be more tailored to my tastes if they if they broke into my bedroom and worked out my sleeping patterns or something. Um, Classical remixes of Oasis. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. How did you know? Um, it's well, okay. So if if you if you've listened to a few podcasts, you may have heard me droning on about how much I like uh, shoegaze electronica, for want of a better word, um, which is this sort of moment in the 90s when the shoegaze bands got electronic producers in uh, to uh, remix them, or sometimes they worked for them, and it's things like um, Chapter House, uh, their album being remixed by Global Communication, and I love it. It's just sort of small niche that I absolutely adore of music. And I wrote about this in January of this year, um, and I basically said, uh, uh, Slow Dive are coming back, and I would really like them to make something that kind of carries on uh, from their later work, which was kind of quite electronic influenced, and there are a couple of brilliant remixes. And Slow Dive came back, and it wasn't. I mean, it was, it was, <laughs> it was like, it was song-based, you know, it was it was pretty pleasant. You know, you could listen to it, but it wasn't what I wanted from them. Lots of people did. It's got very, very good reviews. So, so you know, everyone's happy. And then up popped uh, Avalon Emerson's remix of Sugar for the Pill. Sugar for the Pill was their, their sort of second new track that Slow Dive released. And this is exactly what I wanted. It is an absolutely brilliant remix because basically... She's taken the elements of the song and, you know, dance, electronic remixes of rock songs, sometimes they just throw the whole thing out of the water, you know, and just do do what they like and you can barely hear the original. But she hasn't done that. She's taken the vocals and the guitars and kind of stitched them together into this sort of ambient uh, masterpiece. I'm making masterpiece, so that's slightly at the top, but I, I really love it and slowed it down and added a beat a sort of hip-hop-ish beat and it sounds like she has been listening to those classic remixes in the 90s and she has equaled them and it's absolutely fantastic let's take a listen to it and then we'll chat about it a little bit more when we come back
one of the things that I really like about that is it's such a change of pace for Avalon Emerson. Right. I mean, I wasn't expecting that at all. That's why I said it sounds to me like she's been listening to those those remixes and decided to to go ahead and make something like that. Like her, the productions of hers that I that I know tend to be fairly. I mean, a they're they're techno tempo. Um, they're fairly intense. They're fairly muscular. Um, and you know, this is obviously this is a hundred beats per minute. It's not a it's not a club track. Um, but this made me go back to some of her other stuff and listening to to songs like The Frontier, which was from her Whitey's release. You can kind of see how how even in her club tracks, she shares a certain sort of atmospheric um, vibe with with uh, with slow dive. I mean, it's kind of swirly. And um, yeah, I, I really love what she does here with this that keyboard line the that's kind of all through it. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. And it sort of proves my point, which I'm quite pleased about, which is that <laughs> sort of slow uh, shoegazing music uh, is actually really well suited for a certain type of, of remix because, you know, it has those sort of drifty guitars and the sort of angelic kind of vocals, that kind of thing, which works really well in ambient music. Well, it's funny because it's almost a little bit like what happened with Tame Impala and the remixes of them, even though Tame Impala are not a shoegaze band, but they're a rock band with psychedelic elements and and when was it Errol Alcon that remixed them and they ended up turning out a, a handful of like fairly successful and you know quality remixes that Tame Impala are sort of like an electronic they're a rock band that wants to be electronic which is kind of the situation that the shoegazers you liked were in you know well there's sort of um a subset of rock bands that appeal to sort of electronic music fans and sometimes it's not obvious what they they share but slow dive is certainly one of them and tame impala are, are one of them as well um and then there are and these bands often can be well remixed uh and then there's loads of bands that you just think no there's no way you could remix them i mean uh take suede a band who i really <laughs> like i mean can you imagine a sort of remix of them no i mean actually there's a brian eno remix of one of those songs but he just throws it out the window and just makes something else <laughs> but um but I can't. I just can't imagine that kind of thing working for Sway. But for Slow Dive, it works so beautifully. And your recommendation? Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about. Actually, I'm going to take it back to not exactly classical music, but but back to sort of a, a very song-like aesthetic and a very Hang composerly on, you're aesthetic. You're not bringing a rock band in here, are you? Uh, no, I'm not bringing a rock band in here. I'm not bringing a rock band in here. I, the, this is a rock-free zone. <laughs> um, but I'm bringing a singer in here. Uh, I wanted to talk about the new Sophia Kennedy album, or Sophia Kennedy's debut album, actually, on Pampa, on DJ Klutza and Marcus Fink's label. Um, I don't know if if you know of her, if you've listened to her very much. Uh, I've listened to the single. A fair bit. And I was just looking around about her today. She directed a video for Isole. I just saw that today as well. I wasn't aware of that. No. She's a, she's a really interesting figure. I don't know a ton about her, but she's from Baltimore. She moved to Hamburg um, to study film, I believe. And then she stayed there. And she's been doing theater music in Hamburg, which when I, when I read that, it kind of everything fell into place because there's a very... Um, I was I was comparing a lot of her songwriting to sort of Tim Pan Alley, um, but like Broadway and Hollywood musicals definitely have. She takes part of her aesthetic from them. Yeah, so the the song that I guess we'll play is "Build Me a House," which is the lead song on her album. It's the 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 lead single so far. Um, 
And yeah, we'll, we'll give it a listen and then we'll chat about it. probably listen to this album at home more than any other album this year so far uh and and it's hard for me to figure out exactly what i like so much about it I, her voice is great i find her lyrics very interesting which is something i don't usually pay attention to a lot but hers are really kind of odd and and surreal um they're they're quite narrative every song not every song but a lot of her songs have little stories going on but you never quite understand what's happening. Um, but mainly I think it's just the songwriting, which hits this perfect balance between really sharp songwriting and really sharp electronic production. Well, that's the thing that struck me is the production. I mean, particularly in Build Me House, it's got those kind of keyboards that sound like you could almost imagine them in a house track or something like that. And it's got that, that drum beat, which sounds a little bit Timberland, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Actually, Timberland's a, a Timberland's a great re- uh, reference point there. Um, and I like that because I like... I like it when people do sort of song-based music uh, and, dare we say, rock music, pop music, and actually do something new with the production, which is what I, I really like that Dirty Projectors album this year, for example, which had crazy production. It's interesting that you bring up Dirty Projectors because when I first heard the, the album, that I was thinking of what it reminded me of, and I was thinking of artists like Dara Dorian, who... Um, basically women doing kind of avant pop or unusual pop according to their own sort of rules. And Dara Dorian played in, uh, in Dirty Projectors. And as it turns out, the second song on the Sophia Kennedy album, which is called Dizzy Izzy, samples a cellist named Nat Baldwin, uh, who also played in Dirty Projectors. So there's kind of a continuum. There seems to be a continuum there. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but Pampa hasn't really done anything of this kind before, have they? They haven't released sort of something so uh, poppy, no, so no, song-based. I, mean, I think you can see them sort of inching to- or gesturing towards it in some of DJ Klotz's tracks, um, which have featured vocalists uh, in some of Ada's music. But, but no, not really. They haven't done a full song-based project uh, like this. I mean, every song here has vocals. It's really... I mean, you... Theoretically, you know, Sophia Kennedy could sit down at the piano and play each of these songs yes. and you would recognize the song. Uh, you would know it. You could sing along to it and, and it would translate just fine. It just so happens that the production is really interesting and kind of, to me, like tips it over into something really fantastic. I agree. And the video for Build Me a House is great. Have you seen it? Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> Lightsabers and uh, the... Slug uh, costume. And... Uh, uh, the National Folklore Ensemble Svitanak. Yeah, from Minsk, Belarusia. Well, it says Anapol, but then it says Minsk. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm yeah. slightly confused, uh, and I must confess I don't know. But mm, I don't either. I saw Minsk, and so that... that it's shot in Bar Hooligan in Minsk. Yeah, anybody, uh, if you're on your way to Minsk, stop in Bar Hooligan. Shout out exactly. to Bar Hooligan, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, big big uh, recommendation this month uh, from me, the, the Sophia Kennedy album. Every, every song is great. We We drove up 
to um, near Girona a couple of weeks ago and listened to it all the way home in the car just over and over and over and it's it's really fun. And your daughter didn't demand it to be taken off so you can She has been tea? singing. There's actually wow. a, there's a lyric that goes, Hello, hello, helicopter, take me to the mental doctor. And our daughter is singing, Hello, hello, helicopter. So. And if that isn't a recommendation, I don't know what Exactly. Is. So I guess that's our show for this week. Um, thank you all for listening. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, be back again soon. Uh, in the meantime, of course... You can check us out on Twitter, Facebook. If you can email us, linenoisepodcast at gmail.com. You can send us a letter if you like to do what you like. We'll see you in the opera box seats.